Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Bringing broadband to unserved areas is an important policy goal, especially as the value of the internet connectivity has been shown to keep economies running, friends and family connected, and the ability to educate students in a virtual classroom. How to connect those in unserved areas is a vibrant question with some towns and municipalities aggressively pushing for government-owned or government-sponsored networks. But as the authors of the study we're about to discuss today have found, many local municipalities who decide to create government-owned networks inadvertently create a poison pill that discourages private sector investment in the future. Actually, many of the municipal broadband networks created and often subsidized by taxpayers in these towns have not provided the economic and development benefits that their proponents have foresaw. Additionally, municipal broadband prices and services are rarely better than those offered by the private sector, leaving taxpayers footing the bill for a system that becomes more expensive as the initial sunk cost is just the start and networks need to be continually updated on the back of taxpayer initials investment into a government-owned network. When we see the results of these investments causing harm to communities, is it possible to preempt state municipal broadband laws at the federal level? And how will these preemptions survive judicial scrutiny? Once these government-owned networks are created, it's usually no longer considered an area for commercial carriers to bring in private investment dollars. Today, I'm joined by Larry Spiwak, president of the Phoenix Center for Advanced Legal and Economic Policy Studies, and George Ford, the Phoenix Center's chief economist. Larry and George recently helped author a report titled The Law and Economics of Municipal Broadband, which unpacked the economic and legal consequences for municipal broadband programs. Together, we discuss alternatives to these programs and outline what the federal government can do to keep America connected. George and Larry, thank you for joining me today. I was really interested in the paper that you put out earlier called The Law and Economics of Municipal Broadband, especially during COVID. And so it has started to bring into question more about rural broadband than our our average conversations, which is always fascinating to me because it seems like there is definitely cost benefits to this and maybe more cost than benefit. George, I know you've really looked at this. So can you give me some background on what happens when a municipal decides to do a cross-subsidization into wanting to be their own teleco? Sure. Yeah. The municipalities, often in areas, rural areas where you don't have broadband network, but sometimes not. Sometimes in cities, Chattanooga, places like that, where you do actually have existing broadband infrastructure. The city decides that that either they don't have it and they want it, or they don't have it covering enough of the area as they want, or they just don't like the speed or some other reason that they want to build this network. And when you ask, you know, why are you doing it? Normally what you hear, and this is in the literature that you read is that nobody else will do it. And that was sort of the jumping point for the study for me was why is it that nobody else wants to do this? And the reason that nobody else wants to do this is because the thing is going to lose money. If it could make money, then a private sector firm would come in and build the network or build or upgrade the network or expand the network, whatever it is that that's being contested by the city. And so then the question becomes, how are you going to cover the losses? And normally what happens with municipal networks is there's a great deal of cross-subsidization, and that can come in many forms. A popular way to do it is to just add a tax to property taxes and things like that. The other way, and you see this almost exclusively now in municipal broadband networks where they're attached to a municipal electric utility. And of course, if electric utility is a, is a monopoly provider, 
is a good source of profits to cross-subsidize a broadband network, and we've seen that in, in a number of places. So you're going to end up cross-subsidizing this thing either through tax dollars or through an attachment to a city monopoly of some sort. And the question becomes, if you're building this network to compete with a private provider, is it legitimate for the government to use government funds to support a broadband network that's competing with a private network who doesn't receive those funds? And from that basis, all the other troubles, legal troubles and economic troubles of municipal networks arises. So I'm looking at page 10 in your paper, and you talk about the cross-subsidization being somewhere between like 2000 per person in Bristol, Virginia, to 7000 and I think Lafayette, Louisiana. Is that sunk cost for building the network, or is that does it have an annual cost? What is that number referring to? Those are usually the average cost per house passed or per subscriber, depending on how it's stated, where you have money that's being injected often by the federal government, some cases by state governments, and in some cases where the utility, municipal electric utility, takes on the debt of the broadband network. So it just kind of depends on where the source is. But, I mean, you could say, well, it's, it's for building the network, and in some cases it is, but building a network is not about the facilities per se. A good portion of the capital expenditures of a broadband network arise through ongoing operations and losses and things that aren't necessarily capital. So it's just an injection of of cash that covers the losses, however they occur. I, I don't think I've ever seen one that said, you are to pay debt for this, or you are to only buy fiber with this, or whatever. It's It's just whatever the costs of the company are. And I think the ratio of non-capital cost to capital cost is about three to one when you're constructing a telecommunications network. You continue on that on, on the next page, on page 11. It's an interesting point of saying that when a municipal enters the market, it's almost a poison pill for private sector investment. So you're saying that once a muni starts funding their own network, there are definitely ongoing costs. Maybe people aren't thinking about that, but it's, it's just not one sunk cost. You have ongoing incremental costs to keep it up and running. So you're not going to get a regular carrier back into that space because it's just once the muni's taken over, they're kind of they're saddled. Well, yeah, I mean, if you've got a competitor who is willing to lose money, <laughs> then why would any private company want to come in and and play that game? I mean, it's basically a predation argument or 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 the standard cross subsidy argument that's been in telecommunications and electric utility work for ages where we try to keep monopolists from subsidizing competitive businesses for the obvious reason is nobody's going to enter a business where one of the competitors is an, what we call an uneconomic agent that's just losing money hand over fist and covers those losses with tax dollars or high profits from electric utilities. So these muni broadband networks really, they're claiming in some cases, to provide an economic development benefit. But I see in your findings, you see that it's the migration of what they may be expecting doesn't usually happen. Well, when you're the first guy in the business is one thing. If you had the first gigabit network, then maybe somebody would look and say, oh, well, look over there, there's a gigabit network, let's move. Of course, when you do that, what happens is somebody is leaving another city to go to a different city. So how much real economic 
gain is there? It's not the gain to the recipient city. It's the gain to the recipient city minus the loss to the losing city. So that's going to be a pretty small gain, even if there is some you know, overall benefit to the high speed. There is a cost to doing that, to moving a business like that. The other thing is, is that now Comcast can pretty much offer gigabit service across its footprint. So what's the gain from having a gigabit network? I mean, nobody's going to look and say, oh, well, let's move to this rural town in the middle of nowhere that's got a gigabit network because nobody else has one. I mean, there are plenty of places that have have one. And probably, you know, with with Comcast footprint and and Verizon's network and AT&T's expanding fiber network, there are a lot of places you could go. So I think that the migration gain, which is really a private gain to the recipient city, and a loss to the losing city, I think a lot of that's just gone. People, I don't think businesses are going to move for a gigabit network. They're pretty much everywhere now. So, Larry, let's bring you into this conversation. Let's just talk about some of the laws around this. It's an interesting legal problem. The issue of preemption has been a central issue in telecom policy since two tin cans and a piece of string. One of the problems with, as George said, you've identified the problems with, with cross-substation. So, a good number of states, I forgot the exact number at this point, have assorted laws on the books trying to prevent the problems that George said, cross-subsidization, and so that either from general tax revenue or from, from the electric utility, or sometimes they have some territorial restrictions so that, you know, in other words, if you're a municipality, you're actually serving your municipality. You're not trying to go beyond your, your, your city bounds, so forth and so on. But as one would expect, proponents of municipal broadband don't like these laws. And so for over 20 years, they have tried to seek preemptive relief from the Federal Communications Commission. There is one of the interesting things about the Telecom Act of 96 is that it actually had a explicit preemption provision in it, Section 253. So the original argument, this actually was the last order that came out of the FCC under Bill Kennard, was a municipality had come in and said, we are an entity for purposes of the law you should preempt us. And what's interesting is that the commission at the time, they voted, no, we're, we can't preempt you because the case law leading up to that, and then was, this is eventually clarified the Supreme Court when it went up in a case called Nixon versus Missouri Municipal League, is what the court said that, look, as a matter of constitutional law, the federal government cannot intervene between the relationship between the state and its municipal subdivisions. This is an interstate commerce. This is how a state governs itself and its and its progeny, so to speak. So that's been on the books. There was a wrinkle into this about five, six years ago after the DC circuit in a case called Verizon the FCC sort of turned section seven oh six into an affirmative sense of authority. And Tom Wheeler says, This is great. I can use this as a preemptive authority, notwithstanding that section of seven oh six never even mentioned the word preemption, which is another legal problem. He realized that he had a Nixon problem by, again, that he couldn't tell a state what to do with its municipal subdivision. So they tried to be cute about it. What they said is, well, if the state says you can already provide service, and then if you want to go beyond, then under the Supremacy Clause, we can take jurisdiction over that, the Supremacy Clause, and therefore preempt. That went up, I think, to the Sixth Circuit in a case called Tennessee, and in a very narrow decision, the court said, no, you can't do that. So you have a precedent now that you cannot, the federal government can't get involved in between the relationship between the state and its municipal subdivisions. What I think is interesting is that 
That has not stopped people from trying to take another bite at the apple. Earlier in this year, the House passed a law with a very sweeping preemption provision in it, just outright banned all laws, state laws governing municipal broadband. That will inevitably be litigated. Of course, you don't know what what the court will do, but if they follow precedent, I have to imagine that they would also find that unconstitutional. So it's an ongoing issue. So do you think it would survive judicial scrutiny? Probably not. But again, this was a, it was a matter of constitutional law, which I think is very interesting. This wasn't interstate commerce. This is what states can do. So I don't think so, but that's not, again, stopping people. And so it's, it's a bit frustrating to see in the debate where they're constantly doing this as opposed to focusing on the problems that George identified with the cross-subsidization, et cetera, et cetera. In the paper, George, you talk about predatory actions by some of these unis. Can you walk through that? I'm not sure I completely understand that. The cross-subsidy leads to the predation problem. Predation is basically selling something for less than what it costs you to do. If you're losing a lot of money and money is having to be injected from other sources, electric utility or taxes, then you're not covering your cost for selling service. And therefore, you're basically predating in the market, which is charging a price below your cost. So that sort of situation might very well lead to an antitrust claim, although predation is not a terribly successful route for antitrust work. But predation by governments that operate businesses is more likely than predation by a firm because there's not a recoupment problem where you have that in, in, the, in the private sector. So if a private firm wants to predate, then he's got to believe that he's going to make that up in the future somehow by charging higher prices. They start off putting the equipment in to help their citizens, but it seems like you are in a never-ending chase to then maintain and update it to a level, especially in today's technological capabilities when we're switching over to network virtualization and software-defined networking, which is great when you have a big base to make those changes. But has there been any of these municipalities that have actually been able to stay up with current technology? I mean, I realize it just seems like a crazy economic way to spend money. Like you're just never catching up. Well, I I can't speak for all of them. There are a few hundred of them. A lot of times what happens when the thing falls apart, which they almost always do, is that they can't keep up. And when they can't keep up, the taxes or whatever source of revenue they're using to fund the cross-subsidy or to cover the losses, it gets more burdensome on the constituents and, and people start complaining. It, it shows up in news reports. And then the constituents just say, we're done with this. You know, Get rid of it. Find some private person who's willing to maintain the, the network and, and make these new investments. That's typically the way they die is that, is that the constituents just get sick of it and say, I'm, we're done subsidizing this thing, and they go find some private provider to do it. But that's the, the nature of municipal broadband, and I think that's however you feel about it. The thing you have to understand is that when a city builds a network, it is going to require additional revenues to cover its cost forever. I mean, that's just fundamental almost in the business, and there may be a rare exception to that. I haven't seen one. But either you're going to dump a ton of money into it to begin with, or you're going to be dumping a ton of money into it over a long period of time. And then you're going to have, like you say, you're going to have a problem five, ten years down the road where you've got to completely upgrade 
the network and and if you've been losing money all along and now you got to pour a bunch more money into it people are just going to rebel against that if i can just jump in for a minute just to go back to a point that, that george raised from the legal perspective but the key thing here is, and there's an interesting several areas of, of the law that touch on this, and it really is, is the municipality acting sort of for the benefit of the people, or is it really acting as a self-interested entity? Because there's an old Supreme Court case called Lafayette, Louisiana Power Light, excuse me, dealt with the city of Lafayette, where that came up, where the municipality said, you can't sue me under the antitrust laws under, under the doctrine of Parker v. Brown because I'm the government. And the Supreme Court said, no, 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 no. You're not acting here as the government. You're acting as a deliberate competitor of the private sector. You don't have any trust immunity. And that's a really important point. And then that goes, I think, what people miss about this is that, you know, is it fair? You know, you're not, this isn't fighting City Hall. This is competing against City Hall where City Hall controls your key inputs of production and regulates you. And what's interesting is that there was a case out of the D.C. Circuit a couple years ago dealing, believe it or not, with railroads, who was involved with Amtrak. And the D.C. Circuit said, because of this arbitration clause, that because Amtrak could set the rates, terms, and conditions were at minimum pressure the arbitrator, it was clearly not self-interested. So government cannot be both regulator and competitor. And that was in violation of the due process provisions of the Fifth Amendment. We have yet to see that particular case come up in the broadband space, probably because it's one of those things where you always have to deal with local officials, so nobody really wants to rock the boat. But I've, George and I have both always been very fascinated why somebody hasn't brought that case yet, because I think you do have a major due process problem when you're actively competing against the private sector and you control the key inputs productions, like poll attachments, access to ducks, franchise fees, then that's a problem. That makes perfect sense. I'm still kind of don't understand why any of these governments want to do it other than it's almost a vanity project. <laughs> I mean, unless there's just an area where, you know, somebody doesn't want to go. But if they know that they have, you know, commercial competitor that's willing to come in and then. I think vanity is certainly part of it. I think Chattanooga is a vanity project. I think some of the places are just they're just desperate. You know, they they, they see their their economy shriveling and people leaving rural areas. And moving elsewhere, and they they want to attribute that to something, and internet access may be that thing, and certainly internet access is important. But I've looked at migration statistics from rural to urban areas, and there's no difference really from from rural areas that have broadband, rural areas that don't. People are just leaving, yeah. and they've been doing that since before there was such thing as broadband internet service. So there's certainly more to it than the internet, but I think they're just really Trying to fight with broadband, something that may not be entirely a broadband problem, and it's just going to be a very expensive problem. And then, you know, then you got then you got the issue of a shriveling population having to cross subsidize through taxes or electric rates a broadband network, which makes it even less attractive to be there. So it's a very complicated cost benefit calculation for these cities. And I don't, I don't, you know, I have some sympathy for what they're trying to do to some extent, but it's just. When you build these networks and you cross-subsidize these networks to compete with the private sector, that's a very serious problem. Well, you mentioned, I'm not sure what page is on, but you, you talk about 
Google going in for a while on Google Fiber. And one of my favorite stories from, gosh, I don't know, several years ago was Provo, Utah, putting up for a vote, which they'd rather have bring Google Fiber to Provo, Utah or a Chick-fil-A. And they voted for a Chick-fil-A. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't blame them for that. <laughs> it's delicious. I hear. I've only had it once. But it, I mean, it was amazing for a company as big and as interested in laying down fiber as Google to walk away from some of these projects. Kansas City is another example. I think part of it was yeah. they were expecting as much regulation as they ended up in. And I realize we're getting away from the government-owned networks here for a second. But it's just, it is a very expensive proposition. And it's, you know, this, there's a reason why people are pros at this. And people that decide to come in and, and do some of these, you know, side exercises, it seems like they're not doing it eyes wide open. Well, I, I don't think Google is at all irrelevant to this debate. I mean, I think it's very relevant to this debate. Here, here's a company, certainly with, with good skill sets, very strong interest in the internet, a lot of money, and a willingness to spend money on kind of crazy ideas sometimes that comes in in a very unique circumstance. I mean, they basically told the cities, if you make it easy enough on us, we'll come. Incumbents don't have that option. You know, they get harassed incessantly about doing things that are unprofitable. And here's a company that comes in and says, I'll only do this if you make this very easy on me. They start in the in the high income areas, or at least in areas where people will commit to subscribing to the network, they do all the things that everybody complains about, and they go to cities. They're not going building these things out in the middle of nowhere. And even with all the cards lined up for you, you can't make a go of it. And I think that's, I mean, if that doesn't tell you something about this business, then you have a thinking problem, you know? I mean, that's that's pretty powerful evidence that Things are not going to go well, most likely, when you do this. So please go in with your eyes open and understand that you need to slap some money in your city's finances for covering potentially millions of dollars of losses on this network. And I think a lot of cities have experienced that and learned that. I, I think it's, to some extent, I think organizations that continue to promote municipal broadband are, are perpetrating a fraud on these cities because it's just, it's a financial disaster. And I don't see any economic benefit from it other than just having the internet. I mean, getting your Netflix faster or whatever it might be. It's just not good policy, or at least I need to come up with a better policy explanation than the ones I've seen. No, yeah, I mean, one of the things that we show in the paper, it turns out that, you know, municipal broadband prices, again, going to the competition argument, you know, are not lower and more service offerings, you know, from municipal broadband vis-a-vis -vis the private sector. And it turns out that even some of the, the jobs claims are very overstated. And that's also in the, in the paper that we did as well. George likes to say, you know, either it's an easy business or it's a hard business. And I think people tend to forget about that. And, you know, the market can only sustain X equilibrium number of firms. And that's not a policy outcome. It's an economic outcome. And people tend to forget that. You did a very good job in the paper. You know, you cover a lot, but definitely the subsidies, the predation, and then the challenge to ever, you know, wanting to bring in private investment once you've decided to go with a government-owned network. It's pretty challenging. A lot of decisions you're making sometimes for your citizens that they don't realize that you have just taken them down a path they may not want to stay on. Well, one thing is, is that in some cases, particularly with electric utilities, you can hide the subsidy better from your constituents. If you told the people in your city, hey, would you like to have really awesome broadband, you know, at a reasonable price, everybody would say, heck yeah. 
if you said, okay, we're going to raise everybody's power bill to make that happen, then I think there's going to be some resistance. Part of the other problem is is that when you raise the power bill, like in Opelika, Alabama, for example, which sold their network for 25 cents on the dollar, which is pretty good for municipal broadband networks, you raise the price $5 a month to everybody in the city. Only 30% of the people in the city subscribe to the network anyway, and a lot of poor people who definitely need power but can't afford broadband are paying that same $5 a month that everybody else is. So you're basically having and have not subsidizing the haves, the Netflix habits of the haves, which is a pretty strange policy outcome, I think. I just keep looking through. I highly recommend people pick up the paper if they're interested in this because you just have so many good examples that it's hard to kind of pick one. But I just love the externalities part too. So bonus question, because it's a big discussion here in D.C. these days. Either one of you want to weigh in on our Department of Defense trying to do just the opposite or maybe the same on a bigger, bigger scale and create a civilian mobile broadband program within DOD. I don't know if you've looked at the RFI. It seems like all these same things you just talked about, but having the Defense Department do it seems like a crazy, nutty idea. Well, for me, it's not really clear what they're proposing to do. I mean, you could read that and say the Department of Defense wants to use 450 megahertz of its of spectrum has already been assigned to it to build its own network. And then in addition to its own use of the spectrum, it is going to allow people to encroach on that spectrum when it's under underutilized. Okay, that's one scenario. And in that scenario, people build private networks all the time for themselves. I don't know if that – I don't think in that depiction of it that the DOD is going to be competing with Verizon for residential customers. You know, I think that Verizon might be able to service some of its customers by jumping on that spectrum at various times. The other interpretation might be that, that there, that's what DOD proposes to do is to build a giant network and then wholesale it to other companies. But that would mean that the other companies would not have access solely to the spectrum, but they'd have access to a network as well. It's not clear in the RFI to me that, that that's what they're proposing to do. So I guess you know some clarification about what the Department of Defense is proposing to do with this network is required before too much judgment can be placed on it, at, le- at least from me. I mean, we talk about, large extent in the paper, about how public-private partnerships are a much better way to go about getting network built. You don't want to build a network to serve 90% of the people that are already served to do that. You really only want to build a network to serve the last 10%. It's much cheaper then to try to get the incumbent provider to extend its network than it is to completely build an entirely new one. I think the point George makes is really important. The RFI is, is far more vague than what I thought, and we've read a lot in the paper. But if it proves to be a network where we're going to build a brand new network, they're going to get 450 megahertz of spectrum, which is just an ungodly amount, huge amount of spectrum. I doubt the DOD needs all that spectrum all the time. Then I think you do have the situation with the economics and the law and economics that we spelled out in the paper of, A, you know, somebody's going to come in, it's essentially free spectrum, so that's a huge amount of money that they didn't have to spend for their input of production. You know, do we really think they're going to build a network? I don't know. The market is littered with people who have said they're going to build a Greenville network. And you could have that effect of that. We don't know. And then on top of that, you do have the consideration, and you know, from what I've read in the press reports, like, well, this is going to be the way to 
solve, you know, rural broadband. I think the DOD is probably, just like the private sector, I really don't need a network with 450 megahertz of spectrum to go up to rural Montana. I mean, it's just not going to be there. So you're talking about this kind of spectrum, and it's free. That's the issue. So there's a lot of lot of things at play. I mean, the very minimum, they know they've got a sweet spot on mid-band, and they don't want to give it up without something, even if it's just a negotiating tactic. And I do concur. I read the RFI and found it exceptionally vague and open-ended on. Give us some ideas. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure to be in your company, which I hope will happen sometime in the near future, post-COVID. But I really appreciate your point of view and that you took the time to write this really great paper and share it with us. We appreciate you having us, Shane. Thank you so well, thank much. You, Shane. Absolutely. We hope we explained to you. You did. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.